how well the 15 went this morning. That was probably pretty long, but thankfully the recording got cut off, so no one will ever know except you who had to endure it. (laughs) I was loading it up, and I was like, hmm, it was a lot longer than that. (laughs) Anywho, so maybe you can sabotage this tonight so I can save face, Scott. (laughs) Um, All right, well, let's, uh, like I said, we're going to try to cover 16 verses. It's a long section, but it's it's a very related section if possible. Um, so let's, uh, let's read, and we're going to, uh, and we'll ask the Lord's help. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her, uh, care, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for these words that are before us. We thank you for your heart that inspired them and what uh, that heart means to us who are spiritually destitute. Um, We ask for your help and blessing as we uh, seek to um, uh, learn more of them tonight. We pray that you would uh, help us to repent where we need to and and, uh, in moving forward to honor you in obedience to these apostolic commands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, we'll start by just throwing out a premise there uh, that I'll try to support, and that's that what we have in that, particularly in that first section, maybe the whole section that we read, is somewhat of a, a case study um, on how the fifth commandment applies itself within not only the natural family, but within the family of God. 
you remember our premise here, the, that's that the Ten Commandments are called transcendent moral law. What do we mean by that? It means they transcend the covenant in which they were given, the old covenant with Israel. They're moral precepts based on the nature of God himself that, and because God doesn't change and because he's eternal, those moral precepts, see, exist throughout time and space, always. Um, Remember, uh, from your catechism, I can't quote it like Scott does, but to my shame, I don't know it. Um, But... uh, the law, most believe, is, is uh, divided into two tablets. You remember what they were? Our duty to God and our duty to our fellow man, right? Well, the first of those, what most consider to be our duty to our fellow man, our, our, the law of God for our horizontal relationships, um, is the fifth commandment. We're going to read it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, the, the first place, I think anyone that would reject this premise that, that that's applicable here in our text would go would, would be to say, well, that only applies to dependent children. Understand what I mean by that? In other words, kids that are still under their parents' authority in their parents' household. Adults, you'll understand, maybe under the auspices of their parents. And of course, you can remember this. I think Jesus does a fine job of refuting such a notion that that's the extent of the scope of the fifth commandment in Mark 7 where he says, um, he told the Jewish religious leaders, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he quotes the fifth commandment, he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever and another place, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me, in other words, financial support, if I'm understanding that correctly, is korban, means that's given to God. So in other words, I'm going to take the, the monies that... that the, the support, the things um, that I'm supposed to use to support you and I'm going to dedicate it to the temple. See, and they would allow you then to, uh, to not give that to your parents that God had commanded. And Jesus says, by doing this, that you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother and thus make void, look at that, make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And he says, and many other such things you do. So understand that at at a very basic level, we can gain from that. That's not talking about children, right? It's talking about children in the sense of sons and daughters. It's not talking about dependent children in the home, right? They don't have money to (laughs) withhold from their parents. Plus, their parents don't need support. They're being supported. Understand that? So at the very least there, we see that the extent of the fifth commandment goes far beyond just dependent children still under the auspices, under the authority of their parents. Now, um, I believe uh, the essence of the commandment um, even goes beyond natural family relations. Uh, and and that it's, it governs as a moral precept 
the proper submission to authority generally, like Romans 13, submission to government, church leaders, the moral foundation for all of that is the fifth commandment. Um, and I think it also extends into the whole realm of how you treat all your horizontal relationships, how you interact with all of them. And I think our text shows uh, that, it, that it has clear bearing on, on ecclesiastical relationships as well. You know, remember what that word means, children? That means when it has to do with the church. That's from the Greek word for the church. So that's why we say anything that's ecclesiastical puts it in the category of the church. So look at verse 1 again. I won't spend this long in every verse, so don't worry. Um, he says, do not rebuke an older man. Remember, he's speaking to Timothy. who He's just said in the previous section, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, it's interesting there that the word translated by the ESV as older man is presbyteros, the word that's elsewhere used, even by Paul in the same chapter, I think, for uh, the church elder um, uh, or pastor. But the context, I think, with the rest of this verse and verse 2 makes it very clear that that's not what Paul has in view here. He's talking about your elder in a natural sense, right? a man who's older than you. And guys, this too is a universal moral principle, okay? It's not delimited to this, and it's one that's been lost uh, for a number of reasons. We, have, we live in a, a culture that's obsessed with youth and de- devalues, not just undervalues, devalues intentionally all the merits um, of age. But remember this, respect your elders. I don't know, we were taught as kids... <laughs> Uh, this, this comes from Leviticus 19. It's always been there. You shall stand up before the gray head. That doesn't mean stand up in confrontation. What does that mean? Closest thing I could relate it to is the, like we used to be taught when a woman walks in a room, you stand up, right? Out of respect, to, to honor her. Or before she sits at the table, you stand up and let her sit down. Then you sit down. When you talk to her as a man, you take your hat off. See, most of that's probably lost. Y'all probably looking at me like I got four heads. It was a part of our culture for a really, really long time up until now. It's a similar thing there. And look, he says, you shall honor the face of an old man, not make fun of him, not take advantage of his weakness, his frailty, not mock his, um, I can't think of what it's called, mental slippage, I can't think of the word. And look what he connects it to. You shall fear God. See, the fear of the Lord is connected to this proper treatment of, of the elderly. And think of, now think about this, because it's not as though this verse is, has nothing to do with the verses that follow about widowhood. As you'll see in a minute, the defining marker in this passage of widowhood is her destitution. Well, what are the elderly? What do they move more and more and more toward? See, needfulness to being destitute, to being dependent again like children on others that are younger. So God who cares for such categories of people in his nature commands that they be honored. Understand that? 
Now, qualifiers, we lock them. So does this mean that someone who's your elder you can never correct? Never say you're wrong <laughs> or show them where they're wrong. See, I would argue uh, that's not the case at all. I don't want to bog you down, but the, the word that the ESV translates there as rebuke, that's the only time in the New Testament that it occurs. So try not to you know, conflate it with other passages that say reprove or correct or rebuke. Because Paul uses what's called a hopox, <laughs> means it only occurs here in the New Testament. He uses a, um, a hopox here, that the, the, the meaning of which indicates to strike someone, like to, to be abrasive, to, to intend to harm them. The NAS, I don't have it on the screen, but the NAS translates it, and I think brings out the sense a little better, as do not sharply rebuke. An older man. So see the sting in that, right? There's some bite to that. The, the New English translation says, do not address an older man harshly, or you might say with severity. Or, and in a footnote they say, or it could be, don't speak harshly to an older man. So that's what's in, uh, uh, in uh, question here. And, and, or what's in... Uh, What's being described, at least by the language. Now, to further illustrate the fact that this is not saying that old people can't be corrected. In fact, they must be. They just must be corrected in a way that honors them. Okay, um, Look at the, what Paul tells Timothy to do. Remember, he's an evangelist. He's been told to reprove, rebuke, exhort, or he will be in the next letter, right, with all long-suffering and patience. This is part of his ministry to set things right. That means correcting people older than him and a lot of them, probably. That's the context, right? Look what he says. So it's not to not correct. He says, ESV says, encourage him as you would your father, as you would a father, the implication your father. Now, we define that word. I don't have it on the screen. We define this word. It's our, uh, uh, a few weeks ago. It's, it's the word that's most often translated as exhort. And if you remember, it means to call someone alongside you. Right? So it has a connotation of, like, of gentleness or comfort or something like that. But I'm going to read this part of the definition to you and listen because it makes very clear it is a call to change their action, i.e. a correction. It says, Vine says, that the word is used for every kind of calling to a person which is meant to produce a particular effect. Okay, So he says, don't sharply rebuke an old man. Don't be harsh. Don't be severe. Don't be striking at him with your words. But don't withhold needful correction. Just correct him the way you would your father. Right? Through exhortation. Calling him uh, um, to come alongside you. So a respectful correction. I think that's all (laughs) that he's saying here. Um, But look at the rest of the verse. Because what we see there, and I've often skipped over this, is that all our spiritual relationships are to be similarly governed. Okay? 
So in other words, he's not just saying, don't sharply rebuke an old man, young man. He's saying, don't sharply rebuke anyone. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, look at the rest of the verse. Don't rebuke an older man. Encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. See that? He, he points to those familial relationships. So the, the implied command at the beginning is don't sharply rebuke. And then he says older men, treat them as a father. Brothers or younger men, treat them as brothers. Older women, treat them as mothers. Would you sharply rebuke your mother? You shouldn't, right? God forbid you ought to be stoned to death, right? That's maybe a little exaggeration, but you know where I'm going with that. Um, see, and, and sisters, and he adds, look at this, and you've got to remember Timothy's position here. He adds, uh, uh, younger women, you're to treat them as sisters. And then look at that little phrase at the end. In all purity. Understand what he's like. He's speaking to Timothy here, particularly as an evangelist, right? As an apostolic delegate who's to be at work setting things in order. And he's like, younger women, you need to treat them like your sister. How you treat your sister, you guard her purity. You older people understand what I'm saying by that, right? You're vigilant to ensure her purity. And he says, Timothy, that's the way you're to act. That's the way you're to look upon and treat all the younger women in the congregation. Guys, that has huge implications um, um, for all of us, but particularly us men. Now, don't overlook this. This is kind of a side note, but it's beautiful. Um, what we see in those two verses are an implied or is an implied fulfillment of Jesus' promise that we see here, where he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands, given up all those natural relationships, those natural benefits of life and good things, that's given them up for the sake of the gospel, who won't receive a hundredfold look. I can't do this thing. Now in this time, <laughs> houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Guys, is he talking about the prosperity gospel? He's certainly not. <laughs> With persecutions <laughs> and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you see what he's saying? These are the mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and houses and lands that you receive. Right? It's, it's not... Christian communism, that's not what he's, he's not, that's not what he's saying. I don't want to get gently corrected, exhorted for that. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. Um, guys, but see, this is the nature of the family of God. See, Weston is my brother in as real a sense as Dylan is. You understand that? Hazel is really my sister in the family of God. Understand that. Um, those where we may have to lose those natural relations, particularly more so for them in their culture, see, they gain those back. Why? In spiritually, in, in uh, spiritual siblings. Paul said Timothy was his son in the faith, etc. Right? We see all those things. Right, just a side note. Now, look at verse 3. We see there, 
another reminder of something very foundational. Something in the very nature of God that we see there that's often uh, illustrated to us in the Old Testament. I'm sorry. And that's his compassion for the destitute. I made reference to it before. For instance, Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Now, see why I left that on there? Does this sound like a soft, effeminate description? The God of gods. <laughs> right? The Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome. Okay? The one who doesn't, is not partial and he takes no bribe. Why? Because he doesn't need anything from you. You can't entice him because you have nothing to, he has nothing to gain from you. He's self-sufficient. He's the almighty God. And look, the almighty, this God of gods. Look, <laughs> he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. What's that? Someone who moves into a land and is destitute. They have no land. They have no inheritance. They're forced to you know, glean off the corners of the fields of the people who own the land. Understand that. And it says, he, um, he loves them and he provides for them. He gives them food and clothing. Similarly, or because of that, the command to Israel was... Um, Sorry, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. What's a fatherless child? Orphan, right? Now, what do widows and orphans have in common? <laughs> They've got nothing in the ancient world. They've got no one to, to, to go to bat for them, as we would say. No one to provide for them, to keep them safe, to give them inheritance and medical care. They're destitute. And he says... If you do mistreat them, this God of gods, and they cry out to me because they've been mistreated, he says, you can rest assured I'm going to hear it. And how's he going to respond? With a broken heart? Tear? <laughs> he says, my wrath will burn and I will kill you. <laughs> you see that? <laughs> I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, and your children shall become orphans. Understand that. Is this, is this something that's serious and near and dear to the heart of Almighty God? Like, you better believe it is. Remember what James said? Religion that is true, religion that's pure, religion that's not tainted, religion that's undefiled before God the Father is this. What's that? Memorizing the entire book of Romans. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Actually, if you can do that, I commend you to it. <laughs> that will help you spiritually. See, <laughs> when James summarizes what true religion looks like as it's being expressed in the social sphere, and I'm not advocating social gospel, um, I hope you all know me enough for that. But the point is, he said, and by that, maybe I should just say in the societal sphere. So there's not that confusion. Because as Scott said this morning, I agree 100% with everything he said. That is a very loaded word. And unfortunately, you can't say it. Just like you can't talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit without those connotations. And Anywho, 
It's unfortunate, but it is where we're at. So let's just say in the societal sphere, James says it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their destitution, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, that's moral and ethical on the last, right? Holy living, godly living, and what? Care for the destitute. We're going to qualify what the destitute means. It's not what America thinks it means. But um, in any event, look at verse 3. Paul commands, as we'll see later. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, I think I have this definition. Yes, this is important. This will be important for later things in the chapter. Certainly important here. This is, this is an uncommon word. It's not a hopox, but it's less common. It says the word honor here carries the double meaning of both respect, as we would think it, and financial support or um, numeration, um, people say. And they say, this is the notes from the New English translation, this Greek word can imply both senses, and they surmise that both are intended in this context. And I think almost everyone would agree the context makes that very clear. Now, what does that mean then if Paul says, commands, gives the imperative to Timothy to, in organizing the church to honor widows? It means that the church is duty-bound to support her widows. You understand that? I don't think this has ever been something that's been in question, at least for most of history, but we live in a, a society that, where the government uh, steps in and takes care of a lot of this. And so we've sort of been you know, weaned to sleep as... as uh, um, in regard to our duty here. And I'm not against the government helping widows. Okay, hear me out. I'm not against that. I'm just saying because those means are, are there, we've kind of fallen asleep uh, collectively as a, as a uh, Western Christianity in, in uh, our duty here. But does that mean the church is duty-bound to support all widows. What does Paul say? <laughs> I think the old King James there says, honor widows who are widows indeed, or something like that. Tim's not in here. He can usually affirm that. Brandon affirmed it for me. So there's a distinction being made. See, there's a, a, a certain category that Paul says he's referring to that, that um, the church is required to support. And when we say support, guys, we're not talking about living a lavish life. We're talking about food, clothing, and shelter, providing basic necessities, right? Let's, let's be clear about that. They probably did it in ways that would scandalize us today and uh, how meager they were. Um, so look at verses 4 to 5. And, and Paul explains to us this category in those verses. He says, first of all, here's what a, uh, um, a, a widow, here's the situations wherein a widow wouldn't qualify to be a widow indeed. Doesn't mean she's done anything wrong. It just means she has other means of support, right? 
But if a widow has children or grandchildren, and what does that mean? What does that imply? Say, yep, y'all hear that? <laughs> it's biblical, <laughs> hardcore. Saying it's not just the children that have a responsibility. Grandchildren. And you could, there's no reason to say great-grandchildren. You have a responsibility. If it falls on you and there's no one up the ladder to fulfill it, you have that responsibility to, to provide for your widowed mother, grandmother, etc. Paul says if a widow has this, let them, those grandchildren and children, first learn to show the fear of the Lord to their own household. Are you reading along? Remember, that's that word we looked at in the chapter 3 that can be translated fear of the Lord. Often it's translated godliness. See that connection? This is what the fear of the Lord looks like in the sphere of the family. What's that? You taking care of the destitute in your own family. Even if it's your mamma, as we say here, or your great-grandma. He says, if that's the case, let those children make some return to their parents. See that language? What's that mean? It means the parents supported them. Let's, let's, let's give it back. Right? That's, it's only right. And he says that this, taking care of your own relatives, is pleasing in the sight of a God. Then in verse 5, he shows how... Uh, um, he he describes positively what this tr- what uh, one who's truly widowed what her circumstances are like. He says one who is truly a widow is left all alone. What does that mean? It means she don't have children or grandchildren even. I mean, she has nobody to support her. Right? She has no means, and because she has no means, what's what's she done? She set her hope on God. To what end? To what degree? To the end that she continues in supplications and prayers. See, petitioning that God. Day and night. What does that mean? Continually. Why? Because He's the only hope she's got. She has no natural means of physical salvation here. Now, I know some people go a different way with that. and say this is talking about an ordained position of intercession, I don't think that's what it means. I think it's showing her utter destitution. This is the only hope she's got. Hence, she pours out her soul to God continually. Because she's like uh, Naomi and Ruth, right? Except for what the law of God commands, they would have starved to death. You understand that? Except for God's heart for the widow. I need to go on. Paul says, let's see, but, so he makes a contrast between a a true widow, a widow indeed, and a woman who's widowed, but who is self-indulgent. He said she's dead even when she lives. See, that's the very opposite of that. The NAS translates it, I think it helps us understand it, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure. What does that mean? With no regard to like what's proper, propriety, what's right or good. She's a hedonist. She lives to satisfy her own pleasures and her own passions. He says that is a, um, uh, or he says, I think, it's, I think there's a play on words here. He says, even though she's alive and her husband's dead, see, she's, she's the living one. 
Paul says the self-indulgent woman is dead even while she lives. And, guys, this should go without saying, but is this only the case for widows? <laughs> no, no. If you were self-indulgent in, in the sense that, that um, you're hedonistic, you, you pursue your greatest pleasure, and if that's outside of Christ, you are dead <laughs> while you live regardless of gender or age or economic status. Now, look at verse 7. Paul says, suggest that they do this, because that would be good. Are you following along? If I put everybody to sleep like Bradley. (laughs) What does he say to Timothy? Command (laughs) these things, right? Right? And there's a, like a, the original there, there's like an ideal of relayed authority. It says, command these things that I'm, relay those authoritatively. Why? To what end? What will the obedience of those, these things produce in the church? Right? Irreproachability. That's that same word that we looked at back in chapter 3, I think verse 2 maybe. Right? That the elder is to be... Above reproach. Irreproachable, What meaning a charge can't stick. Right? That's the idea. And he says, this is what it takes for a church corporately. Well, we're getting into that. Right now, we're talking about children and grandchildren, <laughs> actually, to be above reproach as Christians. And that's to take care of their um, uh, relatives. But, and look, verse 8. He, so he augments that. He says, but... If anyone does not provide for, notice the gender here, it's important. But if anyone does not provide for his, masculine, relatives. So here, this is a command to men. And the idea here, I'll try to support it later. He's talking about like financial support. The providing for them materially. Food, clothing, Shelter, okay, because in, in the very last verse, he's going to make a distinction between what the duty is to men and what the duty is to women in regard to widows. So that's why I'm pointing that out here. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, look. Now this, see, opens it up even to maybe aunts and things like that. Why? Because he makes a contrast, a graduation, if you will, between the man's relatives and especially the members of his own household. You see that? It means you're responsible, if they're destitute, for more than just your wife and kids. Men. Understand that? <laughs> it's foreign to me as well. Um, but I think it's clear. And Paul says that the man who doesn't provide for even his relatives, has done what? Apostatized. Now, that's not the word he uses. Okay, don't, get, don't misunderstand me. That's not the Greek word he uses. But he, but he does say they've denied the faith. What does an apostate do? <laughs> he denies the faith, right? I mean, that is the imagery. It's that severe. See, that's why I began with this is the nature of God. This is the heart of God, right? Because if, if you're not following these moral precepts, it's a de facto denial 
of the master who bought you, as Jude uses that language. Understand that? He says that he's worse than an infidel. What's infidel in the old King James? Unbeliever. A non-Christian. How can he be worse than a non-Christian? Think about this. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) He's sinned against greater light, hasn't he? And he's a hypocrite. Why? Because this is the God, this is the master he professes to serve. And, the, and, and, and this is the master's nature, and these are the master's commands. And he sinned against that greater lot. And, and he's been a hypocrite. This is strong language, I know. Um, but it's unavoidable. Look at verse 9. I'm really trying not to bog down on any of this. Paul says. Let a widow be enrolled if she meets certain criteria. Now, I think I'll put this on here. Yes. Look at, for sake of time, I'm just going to say, here's the definition. Here's the, the, uh, the way the, the same uh, uh, notes translates this word or expounds upon it. It literally means like to put on a list, to write a name down on a list. So it's, it has a formal capacity. They say this list was an official enrollment Apparently, as we'll see in a moment, with a formal pledge to continue as a widow and serve the Lord in that way. And they reference verse 12 that you can scan down. We'll come to it. And he says, or they say, it was either one, the list of true widows who were given support by the church, which I would affirm that, um, or... Two, a smaller group, that's that ordained thing I talked about, group of older women among the the supported widows who were qualified for special service, perhaps the orphans, other widows, the sick, etc. It says most commentators understand it to be the former since a special group is not indicated clearly. And I would agree with that. And Paul, so he, he talks about a formal enlisting, a formal enrollment of these ladies into the, under the auspices and care of the church. And see, he gives qualifications that must be met in order for them to make the list. So again, this isn't, the duty is not to everyone, but only to uh, those who are truly widows. He spells them out. And I want you to notice how they, how they compare with the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter 3. It's, it's like this is the female equivalent because a lot of those were very male-specific, you know, like managing his household well and that sort of thing. Um, these are the female equivalent, in a sense, of those same elder qualifications. The first one is that of age, which it was not a novice before, a neophyte. So this is more natural age. And it says if, if she's not less than 60 years of age, and then look at the second one, verse 9. Having been the wife of one husband, remember how Pastor Scott told us that that phrase back in chapter 3 was simply a one-woman man, right? A one-woman man. Well, here it's just changing the genders. A one-man woman, right? It's, what's, what's it saying? It's not saying she can't have been married more than once. You take Elizabeth Elliot or something, right? She's been married three times. Is she a one-woman man? Absolutely. 
Her, her husbands keep dying. Right? But she's faithful to them. They, she's buried a lot of them. Um, Jim Elliott, Reagan, was her first husband, the missionary that got killed. So in any event, um, that's what that's talking about. Um, let's see. Where do we get to? Look, above reproach, having a reputation for good works. I mean, she's known for that. Guys, she's known for that when? Her whole life. Right? That's the general tenor of her life. She has a reputation for good works. Look, if she's brought up children, what's that? She's been faithful to her domestic duties. Faithful to the duties, the foremost duties that God has called her to regarding the home. What does that mean? It means she's not neglecting her children to pursue her own passions and pleasures. It's what self-indulgent women do. Women who are self-sacrificial, see, they prioritize their husbands and their families. It's just the truth. He says, she's shown hospitality. Remember that context in the early church. That's caring for strangers is what that means. Christian strangers who are specifically who are traveling and in need of boarding, board and lodging. When she had a husband to support her, see, she looked out for others. See, that's a widow indeed. And guys, this is godly womanhood. Why? Because he's talking about what she did before she was a widow. Right? Ladies, these are descriptions of godly womanhood. Through all generations. Look at this one. Has washed the feet of saints. You remember, you remember a few weeks back, what from I don't even remember which uh, if it was a morning sermon or evening sermon, but we talked about that the 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 disciples of a rabbi had to serve the rabbi in every way that a slave served a master, except that it was beneath them to stoop so low as to wash the feet. He says, what's, what's the, this lady characterized by? See, her humble service of others. See, that humbling herself to serve. It doesn't mean that, you know, she performed that ordinance in church. Okay? <laughs> it means she cared for the afflicted herself. Now she's afflicted, and God's commanding that she be cared for. And he says, why? Because she has done that when she had the ability to make those provisions. And then all encompassing, he says, that a true widow is one who's devoted herself, not to the pursuit of her own passions, but what? To every good work as defined by the word of God. Um, and ladies, this should be the aspirations um, for you all. And men too, actually, uh, you know, other than maybe the the context of brought up children is going to be a little different. Um, but we, we men ought to be characterized by the same thing. Now, Paul says, verse 11, he's not a seeker-friendly guy. He says, but don't enroll everybody. He says, there are certain people that even though they ask, you're duty-bound to refuse them the support of the church. Okay? He says, refuse to enroll younger widows. Now, does that mean if you're a younger widow, clearly the judgment of God's upon you and you've done something wrong, so you should be banned? No, <laughs> right? Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, who's a godly woman, or was, 
She was widowed at a young age. Right? Very young age. That's not what he's talking about. He explains why. It's about propensity. He says, refuse to enroll younger widows because when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now what in the world is that talking about? I mean, Paul clearly says elsewhere, in fact, he's going to command in a minute, command younger women to remarry. So is he saying that remarriage of a widow is wrong? It's apostasy? Say, no, of course not. We have to, we have to uh, take all of Scripture on something. Just for sake of time, I know I'm pushing it already. Um, I'm just going to read the NAS translation. and I think it'll, it'll help, to under, help you to understand it. It says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard to Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, the, the ESV is more literal there, more word for word, if you will. That's kind of a misnomer. Um, but the NAS, I think, captures the sense better. And I'm of the persuasion that that most likely implies that to get on that list, to be on that list that uh, that the church supports, that required some sort of an oath of consecration where they promised to commit themselves to some capacity, uh, to some nature of labor and work in the church, um, and that they would not remarry. Again, this is not nunnery. Okay, nunnery takes a young woman and she says, and says, you need to be a perpetual virgin and you need to swear off and consecrate yourself to God and take this oath. And guys, that's a totally different thing here. He's talking about women of a certain age who already have been married. That's not single women. That's women who have been married and now are in what the ancient world at least would consider old. Nowadays, 60 is not that old to us. It was pretty old at the time. People didn't live a lot longer than that, often. Um, now, ugh, I'm over, and I am not happy about it. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to skip over this. Where's Melissa? Oh, I just really want to show her that I will skip over things. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Understand something. I have to go here. Scott says plow on. He's my pastor, so <laughs> technically he's in authority over me. So, um, guys, understand the sobriety of oaths in that. What, what do I mean by that? How serious it is when you make a vow to God. If that's the case here, and I believe it is, then what he's saying is that to break that vow that she's made... Is, is an abandoning of Christ. <laughs> right, why? Because she's sworn in his name. Remember the Lord commanded Israel to serve the Lord, to swear in his name, not by the temple, not by heaven, you know, but to swear by his name because he's their God. And, and consequently said, if you make a vow to the Lord, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. Why? Because the Lord will surely require it of you. And see, breaking that vow makes you guilty of sin. Look, 
You shall not swear by my name falsely. Why? See, because that's a violation of the third commandment. To swear by God and, and break that is to profane the name of the holy God. And he will, what does the commandment say? He will not hold him guiltless. Right? Third commandment. So, again, Paul says, I'll just read that again, refuse to put younger widows on the list because when they feel those sensual desires that are more, uh, we'll see in a minute more, but more uh, relevant in younger women, they tend to disregard that vow and they tend to set aside that pledge that they had previously made. Remember Jephthah, right? He made a vow. God, if you'll give me victory, you can correct me if I get this wrong, give me victory, I'll sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house. What is it? His daughter. What does he do? He kills her. Why? Even though God forbids human sacrifice, he swore by God's name. You understand? What's the implication for us, the greatest implication? Help me out. Marriage, right? <laughs> what, is, what are marriage vows? They are nothing less than oaths sworn in God's name. Nothing less. To break them is to set aside that previous pledge made in Christ's name. Now, he says not only this, and I, I don't, like my notes are almost over, so this should move a little Quicker. He says, besides this, they learn, meaning this is something they acquire, younger widows who are enrolled, they learn to be idle. That word can mean lazy or, or unproductive. And guys, it's just, we all know younger women are more prone to boredom, right? Younger women have a greater thirst for excitement, for novelty. Right, to have something going on, Reagan laughs. <laughs> they can't be chill like older ladies can. And I think that's why you see the connection to gossip. Because what does gossip give you? Yeah, like you got this knowledge. And it's all, it gets, it's all exciting because you know all these inner workings. And, and what does gossip often lead to? Slander, right? It's all connected, right? The logic is clear. He says, verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. Remember, this is before the age of cell phones and, and social media. This going about from house to house, that was their social media. Understand what that means. It doesn't mean they're going about like caring for the destitute. It means they're being busybodies. They're going about to get this little bit of gossip from this woman and this little bit of gossip from this woman and telling this one to this one and skewing it. And then over here, they're just the king of the hill because they have all this knowledge. See, now we do that with social media. More so, telephones in a few decades past. And he says, uh, they learn to be idlers, gossips, busybodies, resulting in them saying what they should not. What's that? Running their mouths is the colloquial way we say it, right? Meaning they're stirring up strife by, by their loose lips. He says that's what tends to happen when you have an idle young woman. When you have a young woman that's got nothing to do with herself. Okay, are, are young men <laughs> immune to that? 
No, okay? Young men, idle young men are just as dangerous, but it tends in a different direction, okay? Because the genders are different. Now, look at the antidote Paul gives. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend a long time here. It's very practical. Notice what he says. Notice, what he, notice how he says to avoid falling into this great sin. He doesn't say, get yourself in a good small group. <laughs> he doesn't say, enroll yourself in an accountability circle. Or, or memorize Proverbs 31. Or follow this or that really humble lady on Insta book. I know what it's called. I was trying to be funny. Look at what he says. He said, so, in order to avoid this, it's very, look at this. Now, this is deep, son, deep philosophical stuff. Marry. (laughs) Younger women, marry. Bear children, manage their households. What's that? Get busy. (laughs) Stop being idle. Do something productive that honors the Lord. That's all it is. And what's the most natural God-honoring thing in the world for them to do if they're of that age still? <laughs> Fulfill the Great Commission. <laughs> the first one. <laughs> right? Marry, bear children, manage their households. Paul's telling Timothy, you tell these younger, if they're widowed, that's sad. And it really is at a young age. But the antidote is not to give them decades of idleness with the church's support. They need to get busy. They need to get back to fulfilling the mandate that God has said. The same made it, making adjustments for the masculine feminine, the same would be said of young men. Idleness is not good. And he says, look, in so doing, they'll give the adversary, that's the accuser, the one who's going about looking for, to make a charge against God's elect, to profane the church and discredit it. He'll give him no occasion, no opportunity to slander them. What's the implication? That if they're idle, they will give him the occasion, the opportunity for slander. And his slander won't necessarily be slanderous. And he says, because look at verse 15. For some have already strayed after Satan. See that? He's saying, look, you know it. You've seen what I'm talking about here. This has happened before your very eyes. That's what he's saying. Now, last verse, verse 16. And I don't have much on here. Look, remember verse... Eight, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and I said that was talking about like financial material provisions. Sorry. He says, now, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her not provide, meaning financially, but let her care for them. What does that mean? It means help them out. Right? So the, the men who have widows that are relatives are to relieve the church of the financial burden. Women who have, believing women who have relatives who are widows are to leave, relieve the church of the time burden. See, they're to do these things for them. Help them use the bathroom, help them get out of bed, cook for them, whatever. These tangible needs, these 
hands-on things that men probably don't need to be doing for widows anyway, um, the, these ladies are to provide that assistance. And, and, and when they do that, see, it lets the church not be burdened so that the church can care for those who are truly widows, those who have no other hope. They've got no sons or daughters or nieces or nephews to call on. All, their only hope is in the God and the, those who have been, whose hearts have been transformed by that God. So, all right, sorry. I know I went over ten minutes. Scott told me to. Um, we'll just simply pray. But understand, and we, you know, we, I know, and I, I'm, I'm actually grateful that our government forces, you can take me to task on this, but forces things like Medicare and Social Security for old people because a lot of them would be destitute and their kids wouldn't take care of them. But we need to really, really guard our own hearts and, and that we're vigilant as individual men and women to, to care where necessary for the widows that, are, that should be under our auspices. And as a church, we need to look for those who don't have that. We need to be diligent to ensure that we obey the law of Christ here in, in caring for those who do not. So I would just leave you with that exhortation. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for your word. Thank you um, for your heart, for the destitute. Help us, please, to have that same heart ourselves. And help us to uh, truly repent where we need to and, um, and to honor you in the way we care for the needy. We need your grace. We pray for it in Christ's name. Amen.